Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. My point, my point is that unless you discover the real person in front of you, we will not discover the real need. And, and un, unless we start with an intelligent assessment of the real needs of the poor, and we are moved by emotions, as you know, emotions are always changing, and you cannot trust them. And they make you do certain things that feel good to you, and we need to be very careful to do, treat the poor as we treat our pets. You know, you have your pet, you put the bowl of food there, and he comes every day for his food, and you pat him on the, in the head, and he makes you feel so good about yourself. We can end up treating the poor that way, and that is dehumanizing and robbing their dignity. They have a life to live, and they have the same dignity that you have and they have the same moral capacity of moral realization, the capacity to discover the truth and do the good. And we help them discover that capacity. We are serving the poor the right way. Do not blame the poor. You know, do not blame the poor for being in dependency. We have created systems that incentivize dependency. It is our fault. You know, the poor have immediate needs, and they had to make a rational calculation on how to meet those needs now. And if you create systems of dependency that simply reward dependency, then that's where they're going to go. But if you create systems that encourage and incentivize a different way of meeting those needs, then eventually you'll see people moving in that direction. And that is the key here. Don't blame the poor because they're responding to immediate needs. Blame ourselves for creating systems that are bureaucratized. I work with many agencies in my area, and I say, Ismael, many times we're bound by laws that don't allow us to do the right thing. You know? and, and that is the, the, the question here. Resources are better need by those who are closer to those in need. A better understanding of poverty in America is the concept of squalor. It's a filthy and wretched condition of quality. Some people, you know, I remember going in the projects again, and you open some doors, and you couldn't stand the stench, and you couldn't stand the disarray, and the, in the, in, uh, right smack in the middle of that apartment, there was a plasma TV that was as, 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 as large as the, as the wall, and that did not even fit in the squalor around them. And that is something of the spirit more than anything. And I had gone to Mexico to homes that are, the, 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 the floor is out of, of, of dirt, and you can eat on that floor. They are more poor in terms of quantity of money, and yet the culture and the values tend to be different. It was not always like that. That's what I gave you the example of the black community. I have spoken with African American, older African Americans who long to the, for the times of segregation, believe me or not. Not because they liked segregation, they hated it, but because they liked their community. You see, their community was strong because they knew that there were some bonds of, of family and friendship that they needed precisely because they could not help, expect help from the outside. And there were businesses, and there were barber shops, and there were all kinds of things happening in the community. And because we have bureaucratized compassion, thinking that money is the answer, then we have disconnected people from the source of values and connected them to the source of funding. And that's not the answer to the problems of poverty because people are more than bodies to be clothed and mouths to be, to be fed. And that's my point. Respect the poor. Respect them enough to be there and challenge them. And that is what we need to 
to look for. But let's talk about the history of welfare. I changed that letter. I don't know that why it didn't work out. <laughs> but the, the history of welfare in America. The welfare state was conceived in Germany in the 1800s. Otto von Bismarck was the, the, the chancellor of, of the German Republic. And the communists were taking over. Uh, and he said, we need to do something. We need to, because soon our, 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 our republic is going to disappear. And that's when he came with this idea, why don't we give the poor and the workers something to tame the revolutionary impulse? And that's why he came with the idea of social insurance, a little bit of help for the poor. And, and, and it helped, and it worked for a while. And then those ideas were translated into England under what was called the Elizabethan laws, poor laws of England. Welfare began and was adopted all over Europe. And eventually, it transferred into the American landscape. But in America, it was a different thing. Because America was a revolutionary uh, society where we understood things a little bit different. From the very beginning, there was a desire of Americans not to have the government at the helm of helping the poor. In fact, America was a society that was built on distrust of power. You know, people distrusted, distrusted the government, and they wanted to contain the government because you know power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. You know, power tends to have this grab of the imagination. So people did not want to have the government at all in the midst of helping the poor. In the beginning, government was zero help for the poor. All the poor was given mostly by churches, eventually by counties. You know, but your city will help and assist the work of churches and other nonprofits. That's the beginning of the welfare state. Government was mostly absent. There were many mutual aid societies and strong resistance to federal intervention. And most efforts were religious in nature. It was, as I say, residualist. It means it was an activity within society. That's something that people do for the poor. It was not an institution as it is now. But what happened? At the end of the 1800s, there was a series of floods in America, large floods, in especially in the West and the South. And that's the beginning of the intervention of the federal government into helping during times of crisis. These floods were there. There was absolutely need for help. And that's the beginning of having the federal government involved in the care of the poor. And that in itself would not have been a problem. The problem with government is this, that it tends to grab a chunk of civil society, and it does not recede back to its former place. You know? The government comes in and stays in. And then another crisis, and it intervenes a little bit more and a little bit more until it takes over the entire space of civil society. And that's the, that's the problem with crisis. Crisis can also can be an excuse for the taking over of power within society. So that is the beginning of the federal intervention in the care of the poor. The progressive movement. Many of you will not know that there was no such thing as social work in America during that time. Social work was basically started in the 1900s, early 1900s, and the, the beginning of the professionalization of the care of the poor. Until then, the poor were being care, taken care of by volunteers, mostly church volunteers. Now we have a profession, a social work profession, that is going to be taking care of the poor. And many of these social workers began to be employed by the federal government and by the states. And that is the then greater involvement of the federal government. So this expert care of the poor is new in America. Until in the 1900s, it was all made by volunteers. 
So people began to see government as the problem solver. You know, we have a problem, we start an agency, we fix the problem. And not necessarily true. It has happened to me. Uh, and then before the, the crisis, economic crisis of 2008, I remember being in my ministry and someone called me from the, from the food stamps uh, agency, offering me $35 an hour to go and knock on the doors and uh, offer people food stamps. This is at the time when the economy was booming and unemployment was going down and less people were asking for, for food stamps. Instead of celebrating, because I would say, well, if less people are needing food stamps, that means that the economy is better and we should be happy, they were very scared. Why is that? Because bureaucracies tend to grow or die. That's the, that's the mentality of any bureaucracy. We grow or we die. So they needed to justify their budgets. So they needed to find people in need and pay me $35 an hour to knock on the doors to find people to, to get food stamps. Of course, I didn't accept that job. But that is the problem with bureaucracies. They, they have this tendency to continue to expand their reach. And they become invested in the very problem they are trying to fix. You know? If you have a, a, a nonprofit whose budget depends on feeding the poor, what do you need? More poor people needing food or less poor people? You need more poor people. So you are going to be invested in the perpetuation of the problem so my, my organization grows so I can justify the budget, so I can go to people and ask people for help. And that is the problem, and the, the, that is the tendency of any bureaucracy, not just government. Any bureaucracy tends to see the world in that way. I have a friend who was in the military, says, Mile, at the end of the year, we had a budget. And many times we have excess money. You know what we did? We changed the furniture of the, every office every year to be able to spend that money so next year they will be able to give us more money instead of less. And that's the problem when we have the problem of bureaucracy. Again, bureaucracy is the, the answer to complexity. The more complex the problem is, the more bureaucracy we need and the more general rules we need. And that's what we talk about the poor in terms of a line and a number. $23,000 or less, you are poor. How, the, how can we ask the federal government to look at you as a person when he had, they had to administer over a society of 300 million people? We're asking them something that they cannot fulfill. Don't blame the federal government, blame ourselves for giving them that power and that responsibility. It's impossible, but that's what they can do. You know? In terms of the line of poverty, for example, if you are make $23,000 a year in America, that's only wages, so about $15,000 extra come from government dispense, uh, government help for the poor. That's not counted in the statistics of poverty. It's only the wages that you earn, the ones that are counted. So in reality, your family receives about $40,000 a year, but only 23,000 are counted to count you as poor, so you are perpetuated in needing that assistance. But what happens? Well, you have to find yourself less and less poor for that amount to go grow. And, and in, so the, what is the incentive? To stay in your condition and even weaker and weaker and weaker. I have always said that if we want to continue welfare, I will do it the opposite of what it is. You know what I will I'll do? I will increase the amount you make as you achieve certain landmarks in your life, you know? If you get a degree of college, if you get a good job, if you achieve, we are gonna increase the money we, we give you until the money disappears because you no longer will need us because you have achieved a good job, a good education. So the, what is the incentive? The incentive is to achieve. The incentive is to get better and better and better until you don't need us anymore. But we do it the opposite. 
the less you are, the weaker you are, we'll give you more money. So what is the incentive then? To be weaker and weaker and stay in poverty. And that is the problem with bureaucracies. They tend to justify their existence. And to do that, they objectivize the poor. The poor become the instrument to justify their existence instead of really the answer to their problem. The New Deal came, the Great Depression, of course, and that's when we see the incredible <coughs> government intervention in America with the Great Depression. And again, if the government will come in, help, and get out, who will, I will have no problem with government or anyone intervening. You know, the government come in, fix the situation, and recedes back to, the, to, to its previous situation. Perfect. But it's, that's not what happens uh, when government intervenes. Suddenly, by 1934, we had 20 million people in government assistance. Aid to dependent children programs and many other uh, programs. By 1956, we had 2.2 million people in, in assistance. Again, we, we see the expansion of this intervention, and yet we don't see the solution to the problem. That's why we are said today that we have more poor people today than we have in 1964. Yet, if you compare the quality of life of the poor today with the quality of life of the poor in 1964, there's a great difference, you see? So that's what I say that statistics do not tell us anything about the quality of life of people. So the war on poverty comes, that's in the 1960s, and we have all these programs, Medicare, Medicaid, Head Start, job training, health care, direct aid, aid for dependent children, hundreds, and I mean dozens and dozens of programs, spending more than triple between 1965 and 1975, and again, Look at the anthropological understanding of this change. Poverty was going down until the 1960s in America, as you saw. But the, 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 the understanding now was different. What they said was, you know, the poor are in such a desperate situation. They live day by day. They don't have the resources, the inclination, the time to engage in activities that can help them get out of poverty. So a good society, a compassionate society, should massively intervene to plug the holes of need. And then when those needs are met, then people have the time, the inclination, and the resources to engage in activities that will help them get out of poverty. Sounds good, but that's not how the human person works. You know how it is. If you lower my bar, what happens with me? That's where I stay. You raise the bar, the immense majority of people respond to the task because we have been made in the image and likeness of God. And I have seen that. You raise the bar, people respond. Some people linger, but the majority of people say, hey, I can meet that responsibility. We did that in our after-school care, in our diocese. There were people opposed to me because we wanted to charge money for these families to have their children in our after school. They wanted it to be free and I said, no. And you know what happened? No, one family did not pay. We did not have one complaint and people sometimes offer more money because they thought we were not asking for enough. And those who could not help with money brought food from snacks or came to volunteer. We need to start trusting the poor we need to start trusting them instead of feeling sorry for them. And when you trust them, you see that they do have the skills and the inclination and the desire to get out of their condition. But we have created these systems that incentivize remaining in that situation. So, and, and we don't trust it because we are afraid. We are afraid that they're gonna crumble. It's really a paternalistic understanding. I'm here, I'm stronger, and I have the stuff. You are down there, you are weak, and you need my stuff. Who is in power? I am. 
That's not an encounter between people who love each other. That's not. And we had to begin to change our mind, you know, the renewal of our mind to see that things can get better if we just trust, trust the poor. So what has been the legacy? Institutionalization of welfare. The legacy of this system has not been the elimination of poverty. We are told that we have more poor today than 40 years ago. So we have institutionalized these systems where the, the, the poor remain in poverty because no longer has a sting. I believe this, that the sting of poverty is precisely the instrument that help the poor get out of poverty. You know, it's like with sin. If sin will, will be like hitting you upside the head with a two by four, we will all be saints. You know? <laughs> what, is the, what is the lure of sin? That it entices you because it feels good. And you do it. Because it feels, it lures you and traps you because it's a counterfeit of what is really good. But it feels good. The same happened with the care of the poor. It feels good to give. It feels good to give free stuff. But under the weight of the free stuff lays the spirit and the dignity of the poor, expecting and hoping that they will be allowed to breathe and do for themselves. Believe in the poor more than you believe in your own systems of care. Believe in them as individuals more than you believe in government or your own programs, you know? I don't believe in programs of, you know, I have just had a debate with a lady in my area that they have what they call cradle to crave system of care in their nonprofit. In other words, they, they basically become poverty managers. They manage the poor to make, go through a maze of services and tie them to all kinds of projects and programs well, that's where the poor will remain. You are creating an incentive for them to remain because all their needs are being met by just going through the maze of services. Instead of creating simple practical projects that don't cost that much, but show the way to wholeness. And being there with the families. No, yes, families sometimes just need food. And just give them the food. But if you get to know that family, and know that family well, then you know when that is the case. And then you give according to that need. That is what I am proposing. Of course, if someone is hungry, you don't tell them, I'm not going to give food to you. <laughs> you have to earn it. You give the food. But then you create a system that creates the incentive for them. What about this? And from then on, we go into a relationship where we go side by side into a better system of care. If you don't do that, then you have missed the boat. And this, are, this is what has happened with the welfare state in America. It started as private and religious. Only local governments were involved. Who were the ones who could be beneficiaries of that system? The widows, the orphans, the sick, and the disabled. Those were the ones. Those who were absolutely not capable of helping themselves. They categorized people. We're going to talk about that in a moment. It was just an activity that people do, not an institution. It was totally voluntary, totally voluntary. It invited restoration. If you were down, they wanted you to go into wholeness, restore you into self-sufficiency. And it was minimalist, a small amount of help. We're not going to meet every one of your needs. We're going to help you, but not that much. Then we entered into the second phase of the welfare state, federal preeminence, from federal presence to now federal preeminence almost a trillion dollars a year to attend these programs. And remember, the immense majority of that money never reaches the hands of the poor. It's eaten up by the bureaucracies of compassion that they have created. And even charities are now on welfare, because many nonprofits receive welfare 
spending. Catholic Charities USA, 75% of their funding comes from government. Who is in control of Catholic Charities USA? Are, are the bishops in control when 75% of their money comes from government? Look at what's happening to us now with this health uh, a human services mandate. You know? I always say that the chickens are coming back home to roost. Yeah? If you invite the government to expand and expand, and yes, expand and expand, don't expect the government to stop at the gates of your church. One day they will come after you. Yeah? So charities, even nonprofits, are in the payroll of the government. It means that it tested. That means that you had to prove that you are in need. But remember how is that measured? You know, for you to, to, to measure the need is a very interesting exercise. Poor charities and special interests are the ones that, that can apply. It's institutionalized now. We have professionals who take care of the poor. And we have bureaucracies who do that for them. You have an entitlement to it, an entitlement based on need. It's exactly how Marxism operates, according to your need, not according to your, ex to your effort. You know? the, the, the greater the need, the greater the benefit. It's a safety net that has become a hammock. You know? The safety net became a hammock when you lay to sleep. Yeah? Cronism, even, even the, the rich are now on welfare because the banks are being bailed out and all kinds of corporations, what do they do? They get their lobbyists, they go to Washington, and they get funding. Now even the corporations and those who have a lot of money, they don't have to create the best products. They need to have the best friends <laughs> in, in government and they get money. So not only the poor, don't blame just the poor, the, the rich themselves are on welfare too. And insist on redistribution, which is impossible. Most income in America is earned, not distributed. You cannot redistribute what was not distributed in the first place. <laughs> The most income is earned. You go out there and you work hard for it. So redistribution is really confiscation. You earn your money and then the government, through taxation, reaches into your pocket and confiscates your property. You don't have a say in, in whether or not you pay your taxes. You have to pay your taxes. If not, there's a penalty, no? So it's not redistribution, it's confiscation. You earn the money, the money is taken from your pocket, the money is administered by a third person, and they decide what to do in terms of the poor. Jesus touched the poor, and he told me, you see your, your friend in need, don't let your friend go, go hungry. You go and you love the poor. You reach into your own pocket where it really hurts, and then you assist those in need. And then we are now finally entering into the third phase of the welfare state, where we brought federal control, individuals directly tied into that system, minimal private role. For example, if you study the role of nonprofits in Europe, you'll see that they seldom exist. Charity is almost totally absent in Europe because all the needs of people are met through the welfare state. So that's not even, it's a totally bureaucratized society. It's not, not a society of encounter. It's a society of redistribution, confiscation, and, and government agencies meeting the needs of people. Universal coverage means that even if you have the resources, you will not be able to meet your needs unless you go through the government. It's happening with the healthcare system, no? Even eventually, even if you have the money to pay for insurance, you will not be able to do that. You have to go through what the government tells you. And then whose values will be imposed on society? The values of the kingdom or the values of the bureaucracies? Look at what's happening to us. You know? 
in terms of the health care mandate. And that's just the beginning. Total control, universal coverage, confiscation of property. In some Europeans, European countries, 67 or 70% of your income is taxed. So the immense majority of your income comes out of your pocket. Whether or not this is effective, let's say that that works. Is this what we call compassion and Christian love? Is the creation of bureaucracies what we call to love your neighbor? I don't think that that's what we have in mind. The results, we spoke about that. Let's compare welfare to work today in America. This is the power of incentives I'm talking about. In 35 states, welfare pays more than the minimum wage. You tell me what is the incentive of that system. Is that system incentivizing you to go and get a job? Or that system is incentivizing you to stay? Remember, not every welfare recipient receives that amount. No? But the, I'm asking, talking about the incentive. There was a study that found that if you count the five principal uh, government welfare projects, that's what you will make. But the problem is that not everyone receives money from those five programs. But that is the incentive. Remember, once you are in the system, you know that there are more rewards in other programs. So the incentive is to remain in the system so you eventually qualify for these programs. In 12 states, getting a job equal to welfare means a decline in your income. Why is that? Because in welfare, it's not tax, and a job is taxed. So if you want to get out of welfare, you have needs, you have real needs in your family. When you make $25,000 under welfare, you got a job for $25,000, you're still going to remain here because you don't have to pay taxes here, but you have to pay taxes in your, your work. So you will be seeing a decrease in your income. In 33 states, its equivalent wage value has increased since 1995. In 13 states, welfare pays over $15 an hour. In 11 states, it pays more than the first year wage for a teacher. Why would you go for four years to college if you see a decline in your income? Okay. And it pays more than the first year wage of a secretary. So in, in those 11 states, what is the incentive? I'm asking. The incentive is to remain in a system that perpetuates poverty. And that's the problem. Welfare was supposed to be an A so people reach out for themselves and get out of the system. That's not the reality. The reality is we have become managers of poverty. Poverty now has become the normal because all your needs can be met through that system. This is the pre-tax wage equivalent between welfare and working. In the state of Hawaii, if you were to receive every possible welfare programs on one of those five programs, it will be the equivalent of making $60,000 a year. While a, a worker in Hawaii, on average, makes $36,000 a year. You tell me what is the incentive in a system, system like that. The incentive is not towards work. The incentive is towards perpetuation of poverty and the claim of an entitlement. Because I am entitled to this. It's my right as a citizen. You owe it to me. And my needs are being met through that system. What we have is the perpetuation of poverty instead of the ending of poverty. In Ohio, it's 80% of the median at 41%. The hourly rate equivalent of welfare by jurisdiction in Hawaii is the equivalent of a $29 an hour job. 
in Washington DC 24 and so on. Again, the problem is not that people are receiving this. The problem is what is doing to the human spirit. I know many families who are on welfare and want to get out of welfare. Those are the families that we need to support. You know, there is a difference between those who absolutely are trying to do the best they can. And they have to record to, to these systems. But we have to come alongside them and help them to abandon a system they want to abandon. Don't blame the poor to going into systems like this because we have created systems that incentivize this kind of situation. What is our response as Christians? That's what is important here. What should be our response as Christians? Should be to get grants from the government and establish agencies that have absolutely no difference from a government agency? Because I have seen that. You get a grant from the government, and the only difference between your agency at, the, at your church and the government agency across the street is that you hired a different guy. That's the difference. So you are the higher hand of the state, doing exactly what the state tells you to do. Is that what we call Christian and Catholic compassion? Or should it be a radical counterculture stand that says, no, we have a better response than these systems that perpetuate poverty? Let's talk a little bit about the principle of subsidiarity and the seven principles of effective compassion. There are seven principles that I would like to leave with you that will help you and assist you in your work with the poor. And I want you to know because those principles come from our tradition. There are many researchers have, that ask this question. How Christians help each other before government got in the way of this? They were helping each other, and they, we can re rediscover our own tradition and go back to help the poor as Catholics are supposed to do. The first one is the principle of subsidiarity. A structure of a higher order should not intervene in the internal life of social groups of a lower order, depriving them of their competence. If higher order intervenes, the interventions should be limited both in scope and duration. Meaning, very simply, if the government intervenes, and it should intervene sometimes, it should help and get away from, get away. And let people struggle. It's okay to struggle. It's from that struggle that we find the strength to get out of poverty. As I said, the immense majority of poor people in America today do not remain in poverty. It takes about eight years to a poor family in America, America to get out of poverty. All research tells us the same. Most people work hard, struggle, use their resources from time to time, and eventually get out of poverty. When you say get out of poverty, are you talking about that line that considers? Exactly. Okay. That's, that's it, that line. Because already under poverty, the immense majority of them do not have a life that is that desperate. You know what happens? I have been working in the inner cities for a long time. And many of us have a, a, a skewed view of who is poor, you know, because we work with the worst of the worst cases all the time. I have many social work friends who tell me the same as my own. We sometimes lose sight of what really poverty is in America because the cases we work with are the worst. And then we think that that is the face of poverty in America all the time. When the reality sometimes is the exception of the, work, of the face of poverty in America. Wouldn't it be a better way of using resources? Instead of giving money to systems like this, to tackle those who remain in abject poverty for a long time, between 8 and 7% of the poor remain in poverty at least for 10 years. Wouldn't it be better to use all our resources to focus on that 8 to 10% of people instead of the, all the millions that we are told that are in poverty? We, we could use less resources and still have more money 
to attend the needs of those who remain in abject poverty. And many times the problems there are emotional, a mental illness, drug addiction, a family disarray, and problems like that, the ones that create this, these issues. I am in the board of a mental, a, a, a mental problems organization in my, in my district, and sometimes there are no resources for them. And they are dealing with people who really cannot help themselves, the mentally ill. And sometimes there's all kinds of resources for people who are able-bodied and can take care of themselves. It shouldn't be, shouldn't be like that. But the principle of subsidiarity comes from our tradition and tells us those who are closer to the problem, we have the first line of responsibility. Government, corporations are far away from the people. They should intervene only as the last resort. When nothing else works, then the government comes in and helps and should get out of the way as soon as possible to let people deal with their own problems. This is subsidiarity. The human person at the center, the basic communities like the family, the church, and the neighborhood next, and only then government and corporations. No, not that I know about. It could happen, but no, not only the federal government, the state governments too, you know. Uh, and not only government, many of the major nonprofits in America, it's the same situation. <coughs> I, I trust more the small nonprofits who have smaller budgets are doing the best they can with a lot, not many resources. They know the people and they do great work. I trust them better than those massive organizations. Not because there are bad people there, you know. I have known wonderful people in, in the government resources. One of my best trainings was with the Social Services Office of Lee County Government. 75 uh, social workers in the room. I thought they were gonna burn me at the stake in the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> but no, they say, Ismael, we agree with you. The problem is that we are tied. Our hands are tied by these bureaucracies and these regulations. We wish we could send people to churches, but, the, the, but, but what happens with the law? Doesn't allow you to do that. We wish we could do more with less. And, and, and the problem is that, and then what happens with them? They're, they're burned out and they settle by just getting their paycheck and doing the minimum. They end up, and they told me, we end up resenting the poor. You know why? Because these bureaucracies have the tendency of, of not seeing the person, and then people come with this sense of entitlement. You owe me, I pay your salary, where's your supervisor? And they're treated like dogs by those who are coming for, for support. And they end up frustrated and settling to get my paycheck and hating those who are there, they're trying to help. And that is not the way we should be trying to help the poor. And this is another principle. It comes from the evangelical tradition, but I think it's a beautiful principle. It's aligned with our Catholic social teaching. It's called sphere sovereignty. It compares society to a human organism. You know, you have different organs the liver, the kidney, the heart, each one of them have a very specific function, narrow function. They all work in coordination, but each one of them has a narrow function. The church is one, the family, government is one, one of those organs with narrow functions and responsibilities. And as long as government is maintained within those narrow functions and responsibilities, it's a source for good. But what we have done, we have overcharged that organ. And what happens when an organ within your body is overcharged? Disease, illness, and even the death of the organism ensues. And that's what we have done. And we have done that by rescinding our own responsibility towards the poor. Let me share with you the first principle of effective compassion. This is a good time to to talk about that. 
And that principle is called the principle of affiliation. Affiliation. And you can add that later to your, to your manual. Connect with people and help people connect. The first question that you, if you are engaged in work with the poor, the first question you should ask is not, how may I help you? The first question should be, who should be helping you in this case? And trying to reconnect the poor to those relationships they have surrendered. And sometimes by just doing that, reconciliation is achieved, harmony is achieved, the need is met, and you didn't have to do more than that. Remember the, the, the example I gave about the Haitian guy? You know, I helped him reconnect to his family. And that could fix the problem. Instead of me writing him a check, and the problem will have continued to per perpetuate. The problem sometimes is that we create systems that bypass families, and bypass the churches, and bypass those who can really help the poor. So we become like the, like, like, like the so absolutely necessary organization. And we don't care about what others are doing in the community. So when someone comes for help, you should get to know that person and find out what is the real situation and try to reconnect that person with those relationships that they have been surrendered. You know what happens in the ghetto many times? There's such a disconnect in the families there that they, people go to jail, when they come back, you know who welcomes them as family? The drug dealers, back into the business. Because there's no longer a source of, of strength in the community where you can then join and that becomes a family for you. So affiliation is so important. If your organization and the organization you are working for is not trying to do that, there is something wrong. Try to reconnect people to those relationships they have surrendered. The second one is, the second one is bonding. Helping one person at a time. Forget about changing the world. You know, these utopian dreams are not gonna take you anywhere. You know, you know sometimes we can even change ourselves and we want to change the world. <laughs> Try one person at a time. We love and with strength too. Some people need a hug, some people need a job, some people need a plate of food, and some people need a kick in the rear to wake them up too. So, so bond with people. When you bond with them, you know what is the real need and you can attend that real need. The third principle, categorization. Categorization <coughs> means that, very simply, two persons in need, but with different values and different lifestyles should be treated differently. It's exactly the opposite as the mentality of the welfare state. In our system, or the welfare state, excuse me, is based on need. Two persons in need and the identical need are treated identically, no? If you make 20,000, you get this check. You make 20,000, you make this check exactly the same. We should do the opposite. Two persons in identical economic circumstances, but with different values, should be treated differently. You have to personalize care. And that's why you have systems, for example, food distribution system. If, the, if your organization is giving food and the end of the program is just to give food, there's something wrong with it. The food should be the instrument to teach them a value. That should be the key ingredient in your project. What values are you conveying? We just helped a, a, a food bank in Fort Myers change the way they distribute food. You know what they do now? They connect with the families. They just don't go and give money to whom, food to whomever comes. They first connect with you. And then they have on the side a, a farm. 
We created, help them create that farm. They have to volunteer in that farm. You want to help now? We help you now. You want to receive help in a continual basis? Come alongside with us. We are creating a business here. <coughs> a business that is going to eventually, all those crops are going to be sold in the market and the money goes back to the soup kitchen. That's what uh, Christians used to do in the 1800s. If you were able-bodied and you went to an organization, I need help. You know what they did? If you were a man, they will give you an ax. And they will tell you, go and cut some, some wood. You know, there are women here who are elderly who cannot cut wood and the winter is coming. You go and cut some wood for them. After you do that, you come and we help you. You see, they demonstrated a desire to change their condition. Soup kitchens, you know what they did? Intentionally, they made the food not taste that good. Yeah, you know why? Because they wanted you to hate it. <laughs> I, they wanted you then to say, this is not the life I want for me. I want to change my life. You were mad, your belly was full, but if you give me Ritz Carton quality food for free forever, I'm gonna stay in Ritz Carton. Why should I go and work and get money from Piggly Wiggly? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you see, in other words, they created, they met the need, but they created the incentive for helping people get out of that condition. And that's the key, the incentive. The key is not what you give to the poor. They need and, they, and you should give. The key is what incentives you are building into your project that create the desire for people to get out of that situation. And that's the key. That is the heart of your, of your project. <clears throat> the number four is on the other side. It's called discernment. Be a good steward. Give responsibly and demand responsibility. The worst thing you can do is get in a grant from someone who is so generous and he sees you squandering the money. Only in government where you squander the money, you can go to Congress and ask for more money. <laughs> but in, try to run your business that way to see what happens, you know? That's what happens with government. Normally, there are two excuses. Number one, you didn't give us enough money. And number two, things would have been worse if we don't intervene. That's what they tell you. We would never know because you intervened. <laughs> so, but that's the excuse. But no, be wise. Go from the head. <coughs> Sit down and, and to examine intelligently what are the real needs of the poor, and then give according to that need. It's not only the head. You have to have a heart for the poor. You can have all the good ideas in your head, and never move a finger for the poor because you don't care for them. But you can care so much for them that you don't care what you do. And then that is also hurtful for the poor. So be discerning. We don't have a lot of time, but let me uh, go fast on, on this. Number five is employment. I think this is so important. Every program to help the poor that involves employment works because there is something mysterious in the, in the reality that you are engaged in the process of getting something. Something wonderful, I think that this has to do with the image of God in us. God made us like that. Before, in, read Genesis today, before sin entered into the world, he gave us two things, each other, he took from the rib of, uh, of Adam and made Eve and united them as husband and wife, the beginning of a family, the family. And second, he said, tend the garden. Work was given before the entering of sin. Work and family. That's the answer to poverty right there. It's simpler than, than done, but that is the answer. Employment, demand work from people. Engage the poor. I have a, an evangelical church, it's called Next Level. One of the largest growing churches, evangelical churches in the United States, the number eight, is in, is in Lee County where I live. And, 
and we did our training, and they were giving the school supplies for free, and now they change it. They are selling the school supplies. You know how? Five cents, 10 cents, a quarter. But the, the very fact that people are paying for it has totally changed the exercise. One of the things they told me, they are reporting more men coming for the, for the school supplies. Because men want to see themselves as providing for their children. If it's just free, they send the women, you know. <laughs> you go and you get it. But if it's paying, I want to see myself reaching into my pocket. And it's just a baby step. But from there, you can then begin to engage these people in a better way that, in, that, that, dig, that is dignified. That is not based on what they get. It's based on what they bring. And that's the key. Employment. Number six, six is freedom, reducing barriers to enterprise. Let me, right quick, <laughs> I know that we are, we are out of time, but uh, I wanted to give you uh, uh, some statistics on marriage. We'll look at what's happening to marriage in America. Uh, in 1930, almost everybody was uh, age, married, age of being married was married. Almost 100%. Today, 59%. In the African-American community, 70% of the kids are born out of wedlock. In my Puerto Rican communities, around 75% of kids born out of wedlock. No wonder we are poor, the family. Yeah. Marriage drops the probability of child poverty by 82%. Think about that. You, we spend so much billions of dollars on government programs, and if we just encourage marriage, that drops the probability of child poverty by 82%. Values change economics. It's not the other way around. And, uh, but I wanted to show you the statistics and the comparison between, uh, yes, from the Fraser Institute in Canada. In countries where you have greater possibility of work, greater economic freedom, <coughs> the average people make $37,000 a year. In more socialistic uh, countries where the government invests more money in supposedly helping the poor, the, the average is $5,000 a year, the poor. And the average income of the poorest 10% in those countries is 11,000 in countries with greater economic freedom and $1,000 a year for those at the bottom of those societies. In fact, the, the top people in those countries that have more government in, uh, intervention is similar to the bottom people in the countries that have more economic freedom. If you expand the economic possibilities of people by encouraging work, we can find answers to the problems of poverty. And finally, the most important one, that is God. And I encourage you that in your time, please answer these questions here read these questions and try to answer them with your groups, with your nonprofits. Bring them. If you want to bring us to your nonprofit or church, we'll be more than glad to, to do a group discussion in terms of how we can begin to change the way we do projects in our organizations using these principles. But God, you know, is important. Charities that stress in the importance of faith are more successful than charities that do not stress the importance of God in the lives of people. It's definitely in the research. You know? So why is that? Because we are not just animals that need clothes and shelter and food. We are human beings made in the image and likeness of God. So to conclude, if you have any questions, uh, we'll, we can really answer them. Any comment? I know that we are Almost out of time. Yes. Um, just wondering, is sex 
Absolutely, absolutely. Subsidiarity, yes. Exactly, sphere sovereignty and, and subsidiarity. And I will, I will also stress the idea that, have this in mind, the success of the indolent in receiving help demoralizes the truly struggling poor. The success of the indolent in receiving support demoralizes the truly struggling poor. Imagine that you are a Hispanic immigrant who has been saving for many, many years because you want to get a better house in a better neighborhood. And for years you have been working so hard to save some money. And finally you get that mortgage and that home in a better neighborhood. You're so proud of yourself. And you move. And the next day you see this other guy getting a free home through Section 8 from the government, better than yours. Don't supervise his kids. Lower the property values of your neighborhood. What is the incentive of that Hispanic? To give up? To give up and join the ranks of those who don't care. So the success of the indolent demoralizes those which are the immense majority of the poor, who are struggling so hard and working so hard to make a better life for themselves. Thank you. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.